Let's pray again together. Father God, we're thankful for your word today. We're thankful, Lord, that you teach us and that you instruct us. We thank you for the well of salvation that's open to us always, Lord, and uh, that there's no end to it. We thank you that there's no end, Lord, to the health and to the virtue and to the life that you give to your people. And so we come to you today as needy folk, needing the living waters of Jesus Christ to be applied to our souls, Lord, today. We ask for the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that you teach us and instruct us. We pray, Lord, that you'd make our hearts ready to listen and ready to obey. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts this day, may they be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our only redeemer. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we approach um, the last Sunday of October, we're approaching uh, what the Protestant celebrates as Reformation Sunday. 500 years ago, the church in Europe experienced what can be appropriately described as a great revival. There was a great awakening across countries Um, and men and women were called back to live under the authority of the Scripture according to its unique pattern. And God in those days, in the 16th century, He raised up remarkable leaders. He raised up people uh, the likes of which I'm not sure we've seen since. And it's a privilege for us at Christ Church to look back and to learn from this great cloud of witnesses. In one of his, his better essays, um, uh, essay on good reading, C.S. Lewis, he warns that every age has its own unique intellectual and spiritual blind spots. And Lewis urges his readers to look back frequently. In fact, he says you should be looking back in your reading more than you're looking down or more than you're looking around you. More often than that, you should be looking backwards to the past in order to penetrate the haze of the present. And there was haze in Lewis's day, and there is haze in our day. We live in very foggy times. In Charles Dickens' words, there is fog everywhere. There's fog on the river. There's fog on the marshes. There's fog on the Kentish Heights. There's fog in the yards of the ships and the great rigging. There's fog under the drooping gunwales of the barges and small boats. There's fog in the eyes. There's fog in the throats. There's fog cruelly pinching toes and fingers. There's fog, writes Dickens, in the great courts of law. And if for Dickens in his day there was no greater fog than in the court of chancery, then we might say today in Christian circles that there are few areas so foggy as the doctrine of the church. We live in a culture that is foggy on the church. And if we look back, and if we look at the teachings of yesteryear, we look back at best in a kind of incredulous wonder at the things that we say, and that they say, and at worst, we look back with a kind of a resentful sneer and scorn as to what our fathers said about the church. It was only a few weeks ago that I ran into an acquaintance in town, and in the course of our conversation, I hadn't seen him for a while, in the course of our conversation, I asked him where he was attending church. 
And his answer was that he and his wife were going through a kind of a cleanse, a detox, they said, uh, of sorts. They were detoxing from the church, having become so fed up with organized religion. Now, that kind of language is nothing new. It's the spirit of the age. It's the fog that we live in. And it's funny, isn't it? It's funny how our culture wants organization in every other place, but they don't want it in the church. We want politics organized with proper authorities in place. We want our law officers organized and our peace officers organized to do their job and to keep us safe. We want airlines regulated and maintained. We want our universities and our hospitals all organized. Organization anywhere. But heaven forbid that we organize the church. Where all of a sudden men and women do a sudden about face and conclude that organization is a definite evil and needs to be exercised from the church. Today is one of those few occasions that I'll give a topical sermon. I want today, in light of this Reformation Sunday coming down to us, I want to consider the biblical doctrine of the church, and I want to do so with the help of the Reformers. If the church is truly what St. Paul says that it is, that is, it's the great mystery of the gospel, Christ, he says, loved the church, and he gave himself up for her. That is, the whole point of human history and of, of, of God's saving activity is the creation of this holy temple in which God has chosen to dwell and to manifest his glory. This is Paul's point in Ephesians 3, that in the church, God has willed to display his manifold wisdom. The church, Paul says, is the showcase for God's glory. If that's the case, then it behooves us to recognize that there's no greater good in this life than the church. The highest expression of the will of God in this age, wrote A.W. Tozer, is the church, which he purchased with his own blood. And somehow we've gone from believing this, believing that the highest purpose in life is the church, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God, to believing that the church at best is one of many goods in this life. Goods that can help us in some limited ways to achieve some form of human happiness. It's just a compartment of our life we've been taught in modern evangelicalism. And we've lost the apostolic conviction, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, that the church of the living God is the what? The church of the living God, it's the pillar. It's the very ground of the truth of our existence, Paul says. Without the church, that is, everything in our life crumbles. And so let's ask ourselves today what the church is. And I'm going to do my very best to be brief and to be concise. On the one hand, the church is the invisible. It's the comprehensive collection of God's chosen people in Christ from all ages, from all lands, from all ethnicities, from all communions, from the Greek 
to the Roman, to the Protestant, from Adam and Eve, our first parents, to King David and godly Jehoshaphat, to St. Peter and to St. Paul, to Augustine, the North African, to Chesterton and to Lewis, and to all those who the Lord has yet to call. The church is the whole people of God, joined to Christ by grace through faith. The church is the whole people of God purchased by the blood of Jesus and joined together by the Spirit. It is mystical. It is invisible and it's eternal. It is not a pet project by God. Rather, the whole of creation in all of its starry expanse, it serves the church, which is a throne and a sovereign God and a lamb, and a people who are meant to reign as kings and queens forever and ever. That's the big, church, the big picture, the, the invisible universal church. But the church is also visible. The church is also local, and the church is also concrete. The church is the local structure that God has given to his people through the apostles, with very specific offices so that the people of God may be fed upon their salvation in Christ, may be guarded by their salvation in Christ, and may be kept for their salvation in Christ. God has designed the local church to bring the salvation of God to the people of God. In short, the church founded by the word of the apostles and the prophets, established by the sacrificial labors of the evangelists, and shepherded by those called to be pastors and teachers, is the only place on earth where any man or woman is given the assurance that they will be nourished upon their salvation and where they will be kept for their salvation. You see, the church is the only place where the Lord Jesus Christ has guaranteed His effectual and His saving presence through the preaching of the Word and through the right administration of His sacraments. This is why, by the way, in our Anglican articles, following exactly from Calvin's Institutes, we define the church by these two realities. The visible church of Christ, we read, is a congregation of faithful men and women in which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments are duly ministered. And my brothers and sisters, there's no other place on earth where you can come under the authority of the word of God, which is the rule of the Lord in your life, and where you can hear the preaching of God's word with the authority with which you need to hear it. The Lord says to his apostles, those who hear you, hear me. Those who reject you, they reject me. And there's no other place where you can participate in the very body and in the very blood of our Lord Jesus, which are not given to us by an act of mental reflection but rather by faith and by the Spirit, the body and the blood of Jesus are transmitted to us by the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We're very sophisticated these days, aren't we? We're very sophisticated in all of our materialism, in all of our rationalism, 
Yet when Calvin, in his institutes, comes to the Lord's Supper, he calls it high mystery. He calls it mystical blessing. He calls it sacred food to sustain and preserve us. And Calvin believes that when the Lord says, this is my body, he's not just signifying something, but the thing signified, Calvin says, is really and it's truly present. You see, if I'm to be united to Christ, if my salvation hinges and depends upon my union to Jesus. What's the union? Is it just a legal notion? Is it just some heavenly paperwork filed in some heavenly cabinet? Is it just God saying, yes, he's united to my son? Is it merely a spiritual union? See, if Christ was raised a body, how am I united to that real body that Thomas felt? If I'm being saved by being joined to Jesus, how am I joined to that resurrected body that lives forever and ever? How am I united to the perfect humanity of Jesus? How am I bone of the Lord's bone? How am I flesh of the Lord's flesh? And how can I be assured through true union to the everlasting man that my body and my soul will be preserved to everlasting life? This is how Calvin says, God has instituted in his church the holy sacrament. And by true partaking of the body and blood of Christ, his life passes into us. His everlasting body <laughs> becomes one with us so that when we one day will be sown perishable, we will be raised imperishable. What one day will be sown in dishonor may be raised to glory. What one day will be sown in weakness may be raised in power. What one day will go to the grave, natural, will be raised a spiritual body, Paul says, forever, because your whole Christian life, you have been feasting on this high mystery of the Lord's Supper. And what your mind can't comprehend, says Calvin, let your faith conceive. And there's no other place on earth where you can receive the fullness of God through the preaching of his word and the administration of his sacrament where you, you're united to the resurrected body of Jesus than in the church. Brothers and sisters, the church is not a place for tips for better living. The church is not a Dear Abbey column. The church is not a club. The church of Jesus Christ is the place where we are kept and we are safeguarded and where you and I are maintained in our salvation. The church is the place where we can be nourished upon the saving reality of Jesus Christ. And it's the only place in this world where we are assured that we can find his saving and effectual presence. Because Jesus Christ has bound himself to his church. And this is why Calvin says, how dangerous 
and how deadly a temptation it is to withdraw yourself from the congregation of the church because it's the only place where you can be assured of receiving the fullness of Christ. Now, in light of this, thinking rightly about the church in this way and being a member of this kind of church involves certain commitments. And I can't go through all of them with you today, but I can rely, uh, relay certain non-negotiables to what it means to be a member of Christ's living church. First of all, we are a member of Christ's invisible church only when we are a member of Christ's local church. There is no promise in the Gospels to belonging to the invisible church if you do not belong to the local church. There is no promise in the Gospel that you belong to the invisible church if you're not receiving the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The local church is designed after the shepherd and his flock. Pastors are shepherds who follow the example of the great and the good shepherd, Jesus. And if you read John chapter 10, you begin to understand what a pastor is called to do. A good shepherd knows who his sheep are. A good shepherd knows who belong to his church. A good shepherd knows their names we read. And he speaks to the sheep as one that he knows this is why church hopping is not a gospel model. The model for the sheep is to be part of one flock and to be known by the shepherd. And in this relationship of sheep and shepherd, it becomes possible to obey Hebrews 13, 17, which reads this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who one day will have to give an account. You see, the local shepherd is given a charge by Christ himself to watch over the sheep, and he is uniquely responsible on judgment day for their souls. In my ordination service, when I was ordained a priest and a presbyter in the church of God, the following was said to me. I heard this, I heard, have always therefore printed in your remembrance how great a treasure is committed to your charge. For they are the sheep of Christ, which he bought with his death and for whom he shed his blood. The church and congregation whom you serve, it's his spouse and it's his body. And if it shall happen, the same church or any member therefore to take any hurt or hindrance by reason of your negligence, you know the greatness of the fault, and you know also the horrible punishment that will ensue. See then that you do everything in you that these Christ sheep may be saved through Christ forever. Brothers and sisters, have I ever seen overzealous in my desire to know who are my sheep? then please remember the word of God, that I am Christ's under-shepherd. I have to give an account for your souls. We are members of the invisible church only when we are under the watchful care of a local pastor. Secondly, we are part of the local church when we commit ourselves to the weekly worship of God's people. 
And we do this not only because we are convinced that we need to be kept in our salvation through the preaching of the word and through the sacrament, but we do this because we are convinced that God is worthy of the worship that is due his name. It would be enough for us because we're so convinced that we need the grace of God. We're hungry. We say to the Lord, I thirst for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you. It would be enough for this to lead us to corporate worship each week. That would be enough. But it's not the only reason, my brothers and sisters, why we go to church each week. Why, according to 1 Corinthians uh, Corinthians, uh, 16, that Paul commends them to meet on the first day of every week. (laughs) Not the first day of some weeks. They met because it's not our day. Sunday's not our day. It's the Lord's day to do His pleasure, to give yourself to His worship. And I don't have time today to unpack the Christian doctrine of the Sabbath, but all I'll say today as clearly as I can that the Lord asks for one day in seven. He said from the beginning of time, a creation ordinance, one day is mine. And you should be in the Spirit on the Lord's day. How shocking, writes Martin Butzer, the Strasbourg reformer, how shocking is that impiety and contempt of the divine majesty, not even to give oneself over one day of the week to these acts of our salvation. Brothers and sisters, many Christians live in rank disobedience to the commandment of the Lord. The Sabbath is His. The Lord's day is His. And when we gather together as His people, when we get a taste of what eternity is all about as we worship together in this corporate praise of the living God, we are doing so because we know we need His continuing saving power. But we also do it because His is the majesty. And His is the glory. And His is the honor. And He says, one day is mine. And he asks us to obey him. We are members of the local church only when we commit ourselves to weekly worship as the Lord prescribes, being in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Thirdly, we are part of the local church when we commit ourselves to the regular tithe. Now I know that the word tithing has fallen upon hard times these days. It is the teaching of the Anglican Network in Canada, and I believe that it's the teaching of the Bible. From the beginning, in the Old Testament, in the worship of God, the officers of God's worship were survived or were maintained and survived by the giving of God's people. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul assumes that our giving should be in proportion to our income. As a man has prospered, he says, so he should give. And this is as much for Paul to repeat the doctrine of the tithe. 10% of your income 
belongs to the Lord. And it goes to His church. 90% of your income is yours. 10% is the Lord's. And I want to say to you today that the Lord can do with your 90% what you could never do with the 100. God promises to let His blessings fall upon His faithful givers, uh, givers. Proverbs 3, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be filled with new wine. And we rob ourselves of God's blessing when we do not give. The Lord says in Malachi, you've robbed me. How have we robbed you, Lord? You've robbed me in tithes and in offerings. And many of us go for many years with blessings of God in many areas of our lives kept away because we refused to honor the Lord in the area of giving to His church. To be a member of the local church is to be committed to the regular tithe. We are members of the invisible church when we are members of the local body. We are members of the visible church when we give ourselves to the weekly worship of the living God. And we are members of a local church when we commit ourselves to the biblical principle of the regular tithe and giving to the church. And so brothers and sisters, let me close today simply by saying this. Psalm 89.15, Blessed are the people who know the festal shout. Blessed are those people who've given themselves to the church. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. You are blessed when you give yourself to the local church because it is there and it is here. Unlike any other place, as we read in Psalm 63, that we look upon God in the sanctuary. And it's there, like nowhere else, that we behold His power and we behold His glory. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.